Welcome to this Innovation Forum podcast with me, Ian Welsh. Joining me today, I'm delighted to say, is Chiara Vitale, who is Senior Consultant at Robertsbridge. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Ian. Happy to be here. We're going to be talking a bit about some research that you recently were involved in, looking at the rise and rise of plant-based alternatives to meat. Before we get to that, why don't you give us a bit of background on some headline impacts of meat eating and how they're changing? Meat reduction is responsible for about 14.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Put that in perspective, that's as much of the operation of the world's entire transport network combined. So it really has the potential to have a major impact in altering the trajectory of climate change, depending on which way trends go. It's also the main cause of deforestation globally, particularly if you factor in both the land used to graze animals and the land used for the production of feed for the animals. So if you factor in both of these, you're essentially looking at over three quarters of available land for agriculture being used to actually for animal agriculture, for the production of livestock and therefore of meat and dairy. And how has this been changing? If you look at different parts of the world, the trends tend to look a little bit different. Very developed markets such as the US and Europe, meat consumption levels are already very high compared to the global average but they do look like they are plateauing. Some predictions think that in the next few years, even two to three years, they might plateau and then potentially begin to fall as greater awareness of the environmental impacts grow. If you're looking at other regions more in the developing world, particularly um, parts of Asia and Africa, that's on the rise. But it's important to note that that's coming from a much lower baseline than in those first markets where it's already very high. What's the likelihood of that trend in developing economies continuing to grow? It depends on a bunch of factors. So it's a a little bit tricky to predict. If we're looking at some of the awareness of the environmental impacts of meat consumption, that's definitely growing. And there are signs from some of the big emerging markets, such as China, that actually collectively the impact of meat consumption is being identified and policy levers might be brought in to start to address that. So if that were to actually happen at scale, you could actually be looking at those trends starting to plateau earlier on than they have done in, say, Europe and North America and and potentially being brought back down. How are consumers currently being encouraged typically to eat less meat? And I know this is going to be different in different economies, but in general terms, what are the sort of things that consumers are, or how are they being encouraged to eat less meat? Honestly, the answer is they are not really being encouraged in any particularly concerted way at the moment. That's one of the things that led to us looking into this in a bit more detail and that leads to a lot of the sort of campaigning and awareness raising that's happening in this space. If you're looking at meat and dairy as a climate issue, they're not quite as established. I don't think some of the figures that we spoke about earlier are particularly well established in the public domain. Some efforts are being made to promote the transition to a more plant-based diet, but they do tend to be quite piecemeal, sort of either businesses taking the initiative. Maybe if you look at the UK context, the Committee on Climate Change has made recommendations for meat reduction, but the government has been very clear that they don't plan to make any recommendations on dietary changes. So it's a very fractured landscape at the moment, and you're looking at nudges here and there, but not a particularly concerted effort. Do you think that consumers see reduction of meat in their diets as an environmental imperative or is it coming down to healthy eating, do you think? I would say it's a combination of both. There's a growing awareness of the fact that particularly in in a European market, same would be in North American developed markets, we probably are eating more meat than is good for us. 
And I think people are becoming increasingly aware of that. And that's probably leading to some of that saturation that we were talking about earlier. I think the awareness of the environmental impacts is really growing and is driving a, a little bit of that trend as well. So I would say it's a mix of both things and different people are likely doing it for different reasons. But the trend overall is unmistakable, really. The plant-based market is predicted to absolutely boom over the next five years or so. It's predicted to essentially grow from 13.6 billion, which was the figure in 2020, to 35 billion in 2027. So that's a almost tripling of the market. And obviously a massive business opportunity for businesses who are involved in the sector. So you were obviously talking about the research you put together with your colleagues at Stonehaven in the and producing a report called the plant-based revolution fad or fixture. In your research then, did you find out whether plant-based alternatives are more or less popular than lab-grown proteins? The constraint there is that lab-grown is not widely available at the moment. It's very much an emerging technology. What lab-grown meat has been produced, uh, that's been done at exceptional cost. I think the prediction is that the cost is definitely going to come down as the technology is developed and it potentially becomes available at greater scale. But I think at the moment, what you're looking at is very much a switch to the plant-based alternatives more so than lab-grown. But once lab-grown technology did become more widely available and affordable, I think you could also be looking at another tipping point in this transition. Your research identifies four waves, as you call them, of meat reduction. What are these? And let's go through them individually. And, and what are the driving attitudes for each group? Looking at data from across 10 markets globally, we were able to identify the profile of sort of four waves uh, that indicate four clusters of attitude to meat reduction on an environmental basis. So we identified a first wave, which we called the established pioneers. And these are the people who display quite high willingness to embrace the transition to plant-based options and also accept the fact that currently, and this is one of the main barriers we've identified to the transition, plant-based options do tend to be more expensive than meat-based, but they're willing to cost on sort of ethical and environmental grounds, and they really rec represent the drivers of the market. We then identified two further waves of potential pioneers who are willing to change behaviour but only really at the cost of relatively small sacrifices or changes to their current lifestyle. So again, when you're looking at that cost barrier, bringing that down is going to be very important to bringing wave two on board. And it's going to be even more important when it comes to wave three, who we call the pragmatic adopters, who are an extremely cost sensitive audience. So they are once again willing to change behavior, but only when it's cost neutral or cost beneficial to do so. So really that reaching price parity or price advantage to switching to a plant-based option, which ultimately also kind of is an accurate reflection of the amount of resources that go into producing these products and the environmental impacts they have, then you're looking at potentially bringing along those two further waves. And finally, we identified our fourth wave, who are the reluctant resistors. And in this case, what we identified as the primary barrier to behavior change for those two in-between waves, cost, it's not really the primary motivator. They probably have other reasons, which could be cultural, which could be habitual for their behavioral choices. That's not to say that they're an anti-green group or they think don't care about the environment, but they might express their green behavior through different options. For instance, they might be reducing flying, but not be willing to consider a change to their diet. And what you're looking at with this group is they may well end up transitioning to a more plant-based diet, but that's likely to happen when wider society essentially shifts. 
Interesting that you're talking about price being such a, a motivating factor. I'd have thought that many alternatives to meat would be cheaper than their meat. Why is it that these are more expensive? Are we talking about the processed alternatives that are produced by businesses to be, if you like, a direct replacement for a meat product rather than people just having a diet that is, involves more fruit and vegetables? Yeah, so if you're looking at some of the direct replacements, which may or may not be particularly processed, for instance, you could be looking at dairy alternatives, as well as the slightly more processed foods that might be sort of based on mushroom protein, pea protein, etc. So what we were looking at specifically, and where this barrier is most significant is where you're looking at direct replacements. Definitely, there are sort of plant based alternatives, such as legumes, nuts, that are essentially at a lower cost as a product, but they do involve quite a significant shift in habit potentially for consumers. Whereas we're looking at certain products, for instance, more fast food based products, that kind of thing. That's where you're probably looking more at a meat alternative slotting in at a plant based meat or lab grown alternative slotting in. And that's where you're looking at more of a cost barrier. Did you do any research into if the deforestation risk costs or the kind of ecosystem services costs were included in meat and meat alternatives? In that instance, would meat come out as more expensive? Meat production at the moment is a heavily externalised process. Essentially, we are importing vast quantities of animal feed from areas that are often high deforestation risk trade flows which tend to be quite murky so if you were looking at these costs being adequately represented by the cost of meat then you would potentially be looking at a much higher cost i think it's important to note that one of the reasons why plant-based alternatives at the moment are at a higher cost it's a much newer sector it's not established at scale yet it's not had the same amount of time as the meat production sector to find efficiencies and ways of externalizing those costs in the same way. So as it becomes more established, it will get closer to price parity or, or indeed a lower price. What then is the role of business in encouraging less meat eating, do you think? So we see a very important role for business. We touched upon earlier about the fact that this really isn't a domain in which government intervention is welcome or government sees its place to be directly intervening on individual diets on environmental grounds. So we see that actually business is really, really well placed, partly to use their existing infrastructure and to use their power to create efficiencies in production to be addressing that cost barrier and to be addressing the availability barrier, which is another thing that we really need to get right to enable as many consumers as would be willing to shift to a plant-based option. And they're also very well placed to identify and deploy those nudges that can also help create this behavioural shift, particularly amongst consumers where maybe the attitude alignment for a shift isn't quite there yet. One thing that's important to note is in our report, we identify a whole range of potential both public policy and particularly business policy options that could be deployed. But different audiences, potentially different regions are going to have different levers that are going to work to facilitate the transition. And it's really important for business to be out there testing these and really gathering data on what works, what doesn't. That proviso, we think that their role is going to be absolutely pivotal in creating this mass behaviour change. Can you give us some examples then of the sorts of levers that work in particular markets? Well, that's where the data isn't quite available yet in terms of what levers work in, in specific locations. There's really a need for a lot of trial and testing and gathering data and ideally sharing knowledge of what has and hasn't worked for different businesses. 
Some things that we know have been trialled are things like the placement of different alternatives within store, inclusion of alternatives in promotions, uh, that kind of thing. But again, I wouldn't say we really have a really good database to be able to identify sort of what are those behavioural leaders that are really working. It'd be great to have that. Are there any other effective interventions then that you'd want to highlight? What works well from a government perspective? From a government perspective, it's just a really tricky environment for them to really step in and to be perceived to be dictating on diet. We actually really think that government should be creating an enabling environment for business to be delivering those nudges. One thing that civil society is very much calling for is that creation of that enabling environment, that consideration of, for instance, existing regulations on novel foods, are they fit for purpose for actually evaluating new plant-based alternatives and allowing their safe but efficient entry into the market? Is government doing everything it can essentially to be enabling business to play its role in that transition? In summary then, is the revolution in plant-based meat alternatives, is it a fad or is it a fixture? I guess probably I'm going to think you're going to see a fixture given what we've just discussed. Absolutely. I think if you're looking at that data on projected market growth, it's clear that it's a market that's here to stay and is only on the rise and rise, as you said earlier. I think the environmental imperative is only going to become clearer and clearer. If you're looking at civil society positioning, where you've had for a long time, for instance, divestment campaigns from fossil fuels, that's something that's beginning to happen for meat and dairy production as well. It's just increasingly being identified as the climate risk and the catalyst of the biodiversity crisis that, in fact, at scale and in an industrial way, it currently is. So that awareness is only going to grow and the awareness of the need for the transition is only going to grow accordingly. So I think we would firmly say fixture. Certainly, if it's going to reach £35 billion, that's the global market, I guess. Yes, that's yeah, a global so market projection. Huge, huge opportunities for many. Events to see how things do develop over the next few years. But for now, Chiara Vitali from Robertsbridge, thank you very much. Thank you, Ian.